You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. Welcome to Sakina Society. Towards tranquility in an age of turbulence. Assalamu alaikum. You're listening to Sakina Society on Radio Ramadan. I'm your presenter, Shahbaz Mirza. And today's show is all about education. Are we doing the best for our children? In a hadith, the Prophet Muhammad said that seeking of knowledge is obligatory for every Muslim. And we know that that knowledge encompasses Islamic knowledge as well as conventional knowledge as well. We're here because we care for the future of our children and the present too. But this topic of education includes schools, parents, society, teachers, a variety of different types of schooling. And whose responsibility is it, schools or parents? And so with such a mammoth of a topic, we have some very distinguished guests with us on this show. So today we have with us Hamza Ahmed, primary teacher, Salma Gardi, a homeschooling mother and consultant, Maria Sharif, who's involved in the Glasgow Steiner community, and Shoaib Sargaro, who's the curriculum leader at the Al Qalam Primary School. So thank you all for coming on the show. So Hamza, we'll start with you first. The majority of our listeners are parents whose children will go to state schools. So can you comment on what issues are faced by educators in state schools today? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, I'm not sure about how distinguished I am as a guest, but I was going to say that um, when I'm speaking um, here, I'm, I'm speaking for myself, so I'm not going to be speaking for uh, primary school teachers in general, and I certainly don't speak for Muslim primary school teachers. I'm, I'm going to share with you my experiences um, and the issues that have been faced uh, by myself, uh, certainly in my early years. Um, Lack of funding is always going to be an issue. That's something that people in most professions will always bring up. Um, but I didn't want to not mention it because it's a really important one. Um, but the other thing, uh, and perhaps for me a more important thing, uh, which I certainly struggled with uh, initially as a primary school teacher, is the fact that there isn't really a unified approach to delivering the curriculum. What I mean by that is that the Curriculum for Excellence documents uh, curriculum for Excellence outcomes are written in a way that they're very vague in general. Uh, people don't generally recognise this or, or, or know this, but they are worded in a very general way. Now, this is supposed to give educators flexibility. The idea is that there's supposed to be some sort of flexibility to tailor the curriculum to the needs of the learners. But the reality is that teachers, certainly teachers who are new teachers, don't know what they're doing. If the curriculum is too general, if there's not enough structure, people come in... Uh, when I first started, I had a primary five class, and reading the curriculum, I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to be doing. What have these children done in primary four? What should I be covering at primary five, and where do I stop so that the primary six teacher can pick up? So the reality is that it causes a lot of confusion, and what schools then do is that they have, over the last ten years, scrambled which is the best word here to describe it, they've scrambled to develop their own ways of delivering the curriculum. And this leads to huge inequality. When each school is developing its own system for delivering the curriculum, what you end up with is every school doing things completely differently. So it creates a lot of inequality. And one of the other things that happens um, 
and I've worked in at least five different schools. I've worked across three different councils in Scotland, and I can say that this is um, true of, of every place that I've been in. One of the results of this is that you end up with schools forcing teachers and forcing educators to complete a lot of unnecessary, uh, overly complicated paperwork, a lot of bureaucracy. And what happens is that that takes away time from effective planning uh, and, and planning good quality lessons. Another thing that I wanted to mention, because I think it's really important and it's something that I've really felt from my experience as a primary school teacher, is that there's a real lack of support for primary school teachers out there. One example of this is head teachers being so constrained by the pressures of their job that they can't support us properly. So recently I taught in a Glasgow school where I had a child who uh, one day thought to himself that it was a good idea to flip over a table um, and seriously injure two other children. Now, the head teacher of that school would, wouldn't take any action over it because the child had certain um, conditions that they had been diagnosed with and her hands were tied. Now, when t head teachers are that constrained that they cannot do what needs to be done, and I'm not saying I know what needed to be done in that situation, but when the situation is that constrained for a head teacher, something's wrong there. And if they can't support the teacher, then I, as the teacher, walking into school the next day, how is my class going to respect my authority if something like that can happen in my class and nothing's going to happen as a, as a result? Another aspect of a lack of support for teachers is that the people that I like to call the posh and the powerful, so the people above the level of the head teachers who make decisions, these people are not teachers. And if they are, they haven't been teachers for at least 10, 13, 14 years. Okay? And the result of that is that they're making decisions for teachers. They're speaking for teachers. And they don't even remember what it's like to be a teacher. You know, they, haven't, they might have taught a lesson here or there every couple of weeks, but they do not remember what it's like to face the pressure uh, of being a full-time teacher. Uh, and finally, I think this is really important as well, because, again, it's something that, that I've really felt, is that um, there's a, a, a definite sense in the wider public of being quite dismissive of how hard it is to be a teacher. So, for example, when I'm talking about um, the pressures of my job, you know, I get people saying, what are you talking about? Teaching's an easy job, nine to three, you get all your holidays, what are you playing at, you know, stop moaning, you know, try and get a real job. Um, but the reality is that, you know, you can't imagine how hard it is with no money to be able to go into a class and teach a huge variety of children and keep them disciplined, keep them hardworking, tailor all of their needs. It's a really tough job, and I challenge anyone to be a primary school teacher for a week and do all of that paperwork on top and then tell me if it's an easy job and then tell me if we haven't earned that little bit of time off that we get. Uh, well, not a little, but, you know, the time off that we get. So um, that's really important because the second that teachers start to feel undervalued and underappreciated, ask nurses, ask any other profession where this happens, you see a quality uh, declining. So public opinion, public support is so important to teachers in terms of how they do their job, but also in terms of how we will influence public policy in the future as well. That's a fantastic perspective, Hamza, and we can come back to speaking about the budgets of state schools and, and how, what they're doing to bridge that gap. But moving on now to a different type of education, and that's homeschooling. 
uh, we have Selma with us, uh, and I'd like to actually ask you: Is how did you find out about homeschooling? Why did you Why did you come to homeschooling in the first place? That's a good question, and there's there's a long answer and a short answer. So I think today is going to be the short answer. But I'm I'm quite lucky in that I come from a family, quite a wide variety of people in my family who um, have chosen to homeschool. There are very few um, other generational women in my family that don't homeschool, so it was not an unknown to me. Um, there's uh, a lot of very personal reasons why my husband and I chose to homeschool our children. Um, I think Hans has said a lot about um, the problems with, with that he's finding as a teacher, and I think that does have a knock-on effect in terms of quality of education, what, t- what kids are then rece- at the receiving end. Um, so a big reason was we, we decided that we had three very different children who all had very different learning styles and I was in the blessed and privileged position of being able to stay home and to um, cater to those, those different needs. Um, I like the idea of being able to, to cater to their interests, to their, have their passions drive their education and we didn't really want to put them into a system that really has um, is a performance related environment I see school as very much a ticker box approach that is looking to um, uh, gain the best out of an individual academically um, I believe in educating all of the child and I believe I could do that best at home so that was kind of kind of our the, the big reasons we decided to to educate the kids uh, at home and not send them to school um, Having, having said that, uh, it's been uh, a wonderful opportunity for us. We've had the opportunity to travel an awful lot. The flexibility that we've had as homeschoolers has been second to none. Um, and uh, I feel the children have really been able to develop their different interests at a pace that suits them. I'm able to teach them to different abilities, different capabilities, um, and we're able to take breaks when and where we want. We're not constrained by a timetable, if you like. Um, and and that's kind of where that we are. Is it compared to um, Hamza's experience, as he was mentioning uh, briefly before? But you've mentioned about a lot of the advantages of, of homeschooling, the benefits, the travelling, the self-paced learning. Uh, but what problems have you faced uh, in your capacity as a mother, um, as a teacher for your children, and as well as a consultant for other uh, parents and families and children as well? Okay. Well, there's ab- there's 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 no perfect method. I think everything has its pros and its cons. Um, And definitely, I think the fact that homeschooling is such a 24-7 thing, I think parents have to be very aware that there are sacrifices to be made. I'm with my children. I am the primary educator between my husband and I, and I'm with my children a lot of the time, especially when they were small, wherever I went, they had to to come with me. So if I had a doctor's appointment, that's where they would come to and that's where learning would happen. Or if I had a friend to meet, they would come with and be, you know, kept busy with whatever it was they were doing at the time. So I think getting time alone, that's quite a, quite an important thing, something to factor into a, a homeschooling parent's day, if you like, or a timetable. Um, and, and I would say that juggling different ages that has been challenging at times, especially when my kids were younger. But um, there are many ways, varied ways around those in order to, to, to cater for that. I have taught two of my, my older children together at times. And then when my older child kind of took the leap and was kind of further ahead in her education, I was able to put my youngest was kind of at the, the right age to sit with my middle child. So there are ways around it. You just have to be switched on. You just have to be aware and uh, you have to educate yourself, really. So that's. 
you know, those were... Um, Hamza was mentioning that he follows a, a curriculum uh, when he's at school in order for there to be a lesson plan for children. What is, what is it that you follow when you're homeschooling? Okay. Well, this is the beauty of homeschooling, really, is that it's so open to interpretation to the parents and um, to tailor it to any given child. Um, what I would say, personally speaking, uh, math and English was a, a core, a staple that I've made sure that my kids are up to speed and, and it's something that we, we follow quite rigorously. Um, but every other subject really has been quite organic. I've been able to teach it to them in a way that best fits their learning style and I've been able to use what I call living books. So I'm using a multitude of different resources and I have to say that should be the least of anybody's concerns if you are thinking about homeschooling. You shouldn't think of, you know, what resources are available to me because they are, there is just so much out there. In fact, far more than 10 years ago when I started out. So Very interesting. Yeah. So, so what about lower income families? Um, is homeschooling and private education for the middle to the upper class only? Well, I would disagree with that. I would say, um, in fact, I can recommend a very good book to, to anybody that's looking to do a bit more reading about, about homeschooling that was given to me by my sister-in-law, another homeschooler. Um, it's by Nancy Land. It's called Homeschool Open House. It's basically a day in the life of 50 homeschoolers. And it's an incredibly inspiring book. You have a homeschooler who has taught her child, and she's a trucker that trucks across America and managed to homeschool her child through to high school. Um, to, to a dairy farmer with 10 children, you know, there, there's no limit that needs to be placed on it. And I think the idea that you have to be a teacher in order to homeschool your child is really, you know, a myth that you don't need to be a teacher to, ho to homeschool your child at all. Who better place to school your child than a parent who knows the child better than anybody? So I would definitely say that if where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, I think there could be challenges, there could be sacrifices, but if you are motivated and if you are, if that is a, a value that's high for you in terms of educating your child, you'll find a way to do it. I definitely don't think it's about money or whether or not you can afford to do it. Sure, there might be parents who both need to work, but then, you know, people will make plans around that. Thank you for that very interesting perspective. Uh, Maria, you're involved in the Steiner community. Uh, and many of our listeners might not be aware of what Steiner education is all about. So in your experience, could you please tell us um, what's been your personal experience of the Glasgow Steiner community? Assalamu alaikum. Um, well, um, I got introduced to Steiner education through friends whose children attended the Steiner, um, Glasgow Steiner School quite a number of years ago. Um, and my child started the Glasgow Steiner School in 2012. Um, unfortunately, the school had a fire which resulted in the school closing down. Um, following that fire, um, the community took a number of years really to re-establish itself. And um, Alhamdulillah, we're in the position that they had managed to set up a kindergarten and um, laterally a school which sadly both had to close down just in, in December of this uh, of the past year um, due really to low numbers and it's an issue that I think we'll, we'll touch upon later on um, in our discussion. Um, so that's, that's basically how I got introduced into the, the sort of Steiner method of teaching um, and I can tell you a little bit more about Steiner education. If tell us what makes Steiner education different? Well, um, I think one of the key, and I should emphasise this, that m most of what I'm going to talk about is through my own experience. I've not, I'm not Steiner trained. Um, I'm not a teacher um, either. 
it's just through my sort of personal interaction with um, the community and the school um, that I'll be talking on. Um, so one of the key aspects that really appealed to me um, was the fact that in Steiner education, uh, formal, formal, formal learning is delayed until the age of seven. And I felt that mirrored um, what's, um, you know, um, important within the Sunnah in terms of teaching children, that children are allowed uh, an extended period of play. So typically in a, um, a Steiner school, you'll have that children will attend kindergarten from the age of three to almost seven in some cases. Um, and then they'll for start their formal education at the age of seven. And then they've got a period of learning, which they um, classify as sort of seven to 14, and that's the lower school period. And they have the same teacher that carries them through those classes. Um, and there's almost this sort of natural transition into high school. Um, the method of teaching that's um, largely used within the Steiner framework is the main lesson. So they have a two hour lesson and essentially the children learn to make through their, 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 um, their through their t t the teaching from their teacher, they essentially make their own textbooks. So they cover various topics. There is a very strong emphasis within Steiner education on artistic and creative um, um, approach. Um, and, and within Steiner education, there's this um, methodology that essentially looks at um, appealing to the head, heart and hand. Um, so they're, they're really trying to um, develop a whole child. It's not just about academic um, ability. Um, and I guess another key facet which Salma touched upon is that there's no uh, testing of those children really until they decide to do um, formal subjects. Um, uh, so that's a little bit about, you know, a background on Steiner education there. Well, thank you for educating us on, on what the Steiner education is. And, and very, um, very interestingly, you touched upon Steiner's methodology in Islamic faith schools, which brings us on uh, perfectly to Shuaib. Shuaib, you have been working with the Al-Qalam's curriculum development. Uh, what have you found to be challenging in educating from a faith school perspective? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. First of all, Jazakallah for having me here. Um, in terms of Kalam um, Academy, I, I might just want to give you a quick background about the objectives of Kalam Academy more than uh, relating it to a particular issue of education within faith. Uh, um, I've spent a lot of time with Curriculum for Excellence looking into the unpacking of codes and, you know, as uh, Brother Hamza rightly mentioned, uh, it's, it's just a framework. Um, ever since I have looked into Curriculum for Excellence, um, I did feel there is a gap between a framework and the delivery of education by teachers and that missing gap was being unpacked by teachers within primary and secondary sector in numerous different ways. And that leads to the inequality uh, in the sense of how, uh, how it's delivered uh, within the education system. And pretty much that would, would have been the mindset behind Curriculum for Excellence that they wanted that variety uh, within different schools. But what became ever challenging is to control that variety and have some form of assessment to see how well 
people have performed and also you know there's other challenges which uh, brother hamza rightly mentioned that comes into play once it's very open ended the idea of kalam academy uh, at the time was there is something to contribute within the education system there is a gap there where uh, we can fill in uh, and we came up with our own methodology of uh, delivering these outcomes and experiences in a structured way where you can measure the depth of education and also assess them over a period of time um, so kalam academy's foundation is based on that concept that is there something that we can do within the education system that can contribute towards uh, how how curriculum is being delivered so we have our own methodology that we have developed it's evolved in the last 7 years that we have been teaching and that's primarily how we identify ourselves as someone who has uh, innovations in 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 that that has also helped us try and contextualize the learning experiences uh, for the belief and faith of the child that that comes to to the school and there are so many aspects of curriculum for excellence where you can do the interdisciplinary learning towards the child's faith as well so uh, we've got human body as one of those experiences where you know we can relate that to um, you know how how allah has laqad khalaqna insana fi ahsani taqwim so we can relate all those so that gives us an opportunity as well to tie the learning experiences as it goes forward rather than having a separate kind of so we don't look we don't look at it as a as a separate thing you know we kind of have the methodology deliver the outcomes and experiences using those methodologies and tools and in the process allow teachers to make those decisions uh, to 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 tie them into a child's uh, belief and faith so uh, alhamdulillah it's been uh, i think it's a blessing that we went down that route uh, which which um, which kind of neutralized the fact that there is ever going to be a challenge having a f- faith thing involved within curriculum for excellence uh, and just a brief question before we stop for a break um there's often a stigma associated with faith schools um from your experience do you anticipate that alqalam students have equal opportunities for higher education alhamdulillah yes the 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 stigma that is attached to the faith school is because we tie an expectations of the, of that faith school within within the primary learning experiences and that's what the expectations become it's an islamic school so everything is islamic or you know uh, that's that leads to a lot of issues um uh, but kalam academy as i said pupils in kalam academy they go through all the learning experience even better and more than what uh, you can cover within normal state schools because it's quite structured and teachers have the flexibility to pick the methodology and uh, so yes you know i see them as excelling inshallah as they move on uh, comparatively to the levels of other uh, other other schools jazakallah khairan thank you very much for your perspective shuaib um after the break i'd love to ask uh, some more questions uh, to hamza the various perspectives that we have here state school home school different methodologies and islamic faith schools as well such as how can we balance 
secular education and Islamic education, um, what can state schools do if they have a low budget, uh, and what's the ideal scenario, what's the roadmap for a global educational system, a national educational system that's uh, perfect uh, for all, or at least it does the very best for the children of today and of the future. But the question comes to mind is how can families balance secular education with Islamic education, such as learning to read the Qur'an, and are children burnt out after a day at school? Let's start with Hamza. So I think, first of all, yes, children are burnt out after a day at school. Um, I think that the most important thing for me is to be the change that you want to see in others. Um, if you don't read Qur'an at home yourself, how do you expect your children to do that? If you don't pray five times a day, how do you expect your children to pray five times a day? Um, I am so um, tired of parents coming to me because I teach Islamic studies on weekend as well. I'm so tired of parents coming to me and saying, Hamza, can you sort out my boy? He doesn't pray. And my first thought is, well, do you pray at home? Do you pray together as a family? Do you read Quran? Children learn by imitating their parents. Parents are the very, very first and the most important educators. If a parent is... Uh, my um, nephew, he prays he's two years old and he prays because every time he sees my mum pray he will go and just stand beside her and he'll just do the actions now if he continues to do that he will grow up and prayer will be a natural thing for him and it's part of the household routine and it won't be something alien for him so I think that it is so important that you are the example I myself um, many of the surahs that I learned by heart I didn't learn because someone sat and made me learn them. I learned them because my mom used to play them in the car on the way to school. You, you know, and, and a child has an amazing memory, and you'll be amazed at what they can learn and memorize. So it's about how you create that environment. It's a chore if you make it a chore, but if you make it a part of your household environment, children will soak it up without you even trying. So there's a shared responsibility between... Uh, the state school, the school that the, the child is attending, as well as what's happening in the house as well, the parents. Uh, so, Salma, what happens in a homeschooling environment then? Well, exactly what um, Brother Hamza has just said is actually what I'm going to echo, because, um, I mean, if you take out the very first question a homeschool will be asked, usually is on socialisation, but following that is, do you homeschool for religious reasons? And actually, while that was not our main consideration, I have to say the amazing benefit that has come out of it is that we've been able to give our faith its due important place in our day where we are able to start with it at the the beginning of our day before we even touch anything to do with secular material and I have to say that has been so instrumental in the education of my child as a whole person as a Muslim and exactly what brother Hamza is saying if they are having the opportunity to see you live like that day in, day out in your family environment and to have them participate in that, that's the best thing that you can offer your kids. I mean, even the fact that my children are able to pray their salah on time during the day where they're not at school, where it's, it can sometimes be difficult, is, is really key. It becomes part and parcel of, of just something that's completely natural. So definitely if you're a homeschooler, uh, I mean, and an, a lot of homeschoolers in, in the States and here ed educate for religious reasons, particularly evangelical Christians and stuff, very strong in their faith, they definitely take that path specifically for this reason. So definitely faith is something that, that is very easy to incorporate as a homeschooler. Fantastic perspective. And so, so we're talking about 
secular education, Islamic education, from a state school perspective, from a homeschooling perspective. Uh, and I guess we have this, um, this divide, or perhaps it's, it's, uh, it's a merger of old traditional educational systems, such as the Steiner educational system, compared to newer, more advanced technological education methodologies which are coming out. So, Shuaib, my question to you, Islam is a 1,400-year-old religion, and we have modern-day practices such as artificial intelligence, technology, the use of iPads, electrical equipment. Are faith schools adopting the latest technology in order to better educate the children that are attending the schools? I mean, uh, I, I think, I think um, you're right. It's... It's, uh, it's a balance that we need to find irrespective of whether we are 14 years behind or 14 years ahead of time for the context in which we are living. And coming back to that, um, if you look at uh, the life of a child, um, they go through different uh, situations, all the family situation, the skill situation, and schools can only contribute and complement towards the circumstances of a child. Uh, I mean, coming back to Kalam Academy, I can, uh, looking into curriculum for excellence, it's, it's actually the Islamic perception that helped me develop the methodology on top of uh, curriculum for excellence. Because if you look at Islam, it's, it's a framework. And you can develop your own methodology based on where you live. So the, 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 the rulings in India and Pakistan and the rulings in, in the Western world on the same Islamic uh, framework can be, you know, uh, fit into, which is called fiqh. And the same was applied to curriculum for excellence. You have a framework and you develop the methodology on top of that to make sure that it fits in line with the fast-changing world. And you develop the methodology to make sure that whatever is there in the framework ties in with the technology, the fast-changing world of today, and moving forward as well. You can use exactly the same concept of Islam and do the same thing 20 years down the line. So this is the whole idea of having a methodology on top of a framework. So Islam has really helped me do that on top of curriculum for excellence as a framework. Islam, Islam. a framework for the future then? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a th this is what it was meant to be. You know, in the Dina in the Islam, it's a framework forever. You have to put a methodology on top of that, which is fiqh, over a period of time. And as you move on, you know, you can. And that's, that's the beauty of Islam, mashallah. Maria, in a few words, let's let's hear from you. What's your perspective on this? Um, so, uh, as I understand, you're, you're asking about the use of sort of new technologies within um, educational framework, let's call it. Um, the Steiner methodology really emphasises, you know, children getting hands-on. So there is no use at an early age of computers, of iPads. Um, in fact, they expressly sort of discourage screen use in general and really because children at that age um, are as Hamza mentioned earlier on they're sponges and these children really need to be nourished so in terms of using technologies you know I think we should uh, uh, from the Steiner perspective it's used with caution really um, uh, indeed you know uh, I think in certain countries so for example France and Canada they emphasize that children under the age of three shouldn't have access to tech you know screen usage um, so if you try to embed that within a framework which doesn't allow children to um, use their hands and get to grips with just 
you know, fine motor skills, um, tangible things at that age. I think it's, it's sort of restricting them and it might cause problems in later in education for those children. Um, so you touched upon a potent subject, which is about, you know, the creativity of children. Are we impacting their creativity at a young age? And we have, uh, I guess we have this increasing pressure on children, university students, graduates to not just have academic skills, but also soft skills, creative skills, implementational skills, organisational skills. There's such a, a wide variety of, of skills which... I guess are expected of, of a child or, or an individual that's growing through the educational system. So let's move the conversation towards how, what are the practical steps uh, that parents could take in terms of educating their children in the correct way uh, in choosing the right kind of education, whether be it old or new, state school, private school, home school, Islamic school, so between, between us all, um, I'm leaving the floor open uh, for individuals to speak. Um, what are the practical steps? What is that roadmap to get towards that desired destination that we want, which is having the best education for, for every single child? Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's really a good question. This, this has triggered the, um, the, the, the whole governance issue and I might uh, recollect there was a governance review consultation that happened, and we we actually responded to to the review, saying that one size doesn't fit all. The education system should be flexible to allow different options. And parents are the primary carer of every child. You need to understand that it's parents, and no two parents are same, and no two child come from the same background because there's so many factors that affect a child's development. Now, the system has that flexibility where parents can choose the right option. There may be parents who, uh, homeschooling is fantastic, but parents need to know that the circumstance with which the child is can cater to homeschooling requirements of the child. And same applies to uh, state schools as well and to private independent schools or schools such as us. So. There's no one, it should be the education system really as a whole that should allow parents those choices and every parent should be able to make those choices. It should be very clear what choices a parent has and every sector, every approach should make sure, so states, state sector should make sure that the bureaucracy is not there and there are flexibilities, there's not much workload, there's not, you know, all those issues are quite, quite obvious and quite visible in the system. That approach towards education should make sure that children coming to state schools do not get affected by the bureaucracy. Same applies to homeschooling, same applies to any methodology or our school as well. So I think you know, it's, it's up to parents who uh, have to have that choice made uh, at, an, at an age where they feel best appropriate and send their children to the right uh, approach. But I won't say that uh, there's one size that should fit everybody in Scotland. Or education is not like that. There are methodologies around. There are methodologies that are tried and tested. So we're talking about choice. Uh, we're talking about homeschooling. Salma, what's your perspective? Well, I um, exactly uh, agree a little bit with what Brother Shoaib is saying in that it's very difficult for parents, uh, you know, the choices available to them simply because the country in which we live in and the curriculum is set by the government. Parents have very little choice in what that actually is. 
And uh, certainly I've read the National Curriculum for um, England, which to me was far more helpful as a homeschooler than the Curriculum for Excellence's Brotherham because this was exceptionally vague in many parts. Um, what I would say is because you're talking about schooling on a, on a national level and what's available to parents, I would actually say that there needs to be a really big shift in thinking in how education is approached by our government and our, our nation as a whole. And something that I'm, I'm sure I've said to you before is, um, Brother Shreve, is um, that we should really be looking to something like the Finnish school system. The Finland is actually the top in, if you look at the, the where results are for children and doing well in the, in, in the, the tables for the world. Um, Finland is usually top, and a lot of that, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm come from the homeschooling um, crowd and homeschooling corner, and I'm going to tell you that that's the ideal. It's not perfect. It's not the only answer, and certainly not anti-school, but the way that the school system is at the moment, I would say, was not something I would, I would be advocating to put my child into. Um, if we look at the Finnish system, I'm just going to touch very quickly on, on, on a few points that, that show what correlation that has with homeschooling in the sense that they have no private schools. Um, every school in Finland is publicly funded, so it takes out that competitive element. It means everybody is going to the same school with the same curriculum. There's no competition there. So everybody's being delivered education in the same way, regardless of demographic. Um, teachers, and I'm sure Brother Humphrey will be happy to hear this, teachers are super valued in Finland. They are a very well-paid profession. Um, yeah, you're moving to Finland. <laughs> and um, and are, are recompensed adequately right up there with doctors and dentists and other professions like that. In fact, um, they actually have to, the minimum level of ma ma a master's in education in order to teach in Finland. The government itself in Finland is actually, um, when they look at research for education to see what works, they're very happy to implement it. There's very little bureaucracy that surrounds education and implementing new ideas in order to, to progress for kids. And obvi obviously the last one that's going to be super popular for any kids listening in is there's no homework in Finland because the Finnish government and the teaching profession there really recognize that um, at home is for family time and the school needs to do their job which is to educate the child so and they also you know they let the teacher really choose curriculum in terms of even having sort of mini, mini laboratories and education within their teaching so that they can discard what doesn't work and they're really encouraged to keep a journal all of those things are based uh, on homeschooling homeschooling is exactly what I've just described to you except you don't have to answer to anybody, you don't need to pass through a government to implement a change at home. You don't need to set homework for your children. So a, a lot of that, and there's a reason why it does so well. Well, Selma, I think I went to school in the wrong country <laughs> if you're saying that there's, there's absolutely no homework uh, in Finland. Um, Hamza, you mentioned earlier on about budgets. Uh, you've mentioned other problems, the fact that teachers don't have the right resources uh, in order to teach, perhaps. Uh, do we educate the children or do we start educating the educational system itself? So does the educational system need to be disrupted? Do we need to learn from other countries? What's, what are your personal practical steps which need to be taken? Well, I think, yes, um, the educational system needs to learn from other countries. Um, what you described there, Selma, was um, incredible and, you know, uh, my wife will kill me, but I think I'm, I am going to make that move. Um, but no, I, I think that it, it definitely does need um, a lot of shaking up. Um, I think for me, in thinking about this, three things kind of sp sprung to mind, which is the fact that um, the curriculum needs more structure. Um, I, I, I completely take on 
exactly what uh, has been said already about giving teachers flexibility and giving them the leeway to be able to um, uh, meet the needs of individual learners. I completely am on board with that. Um, but I'm speaking as a teacher from a practical standpoint. When I go into class tomorrow, how do I know what I'm supposed to teach? The fact is that the curriculum in Scotland just now does not give me that, and I need that as a teacher. So uh, I think that's the first thing. I think this, the second thing uh, is that um, you know we need to cut out all of this bureaucracy. I think there's a lot of unnecessary bureaucracy, and I think, in my experience, uh, and I'm not naming names, but I worked in a lot of schools where head teachers put a lot of bureaucracy on teachers, which are completely unnecessary. Uh, and you know, John Swinney talked about um, tackling bureaucracy, uh, and if he knew what was going on in some schools, I hope he'd have a heart attack, um, because it's really difficult for teachers. And ultimately, what will happen is that if the teachers suffer, the pupils suffer. Um, because the teachers are way too burnt out to be able to plan a good lesson. Uh, and of course, uh, more funding, absolutely more funding needed for more resources. In terms of wider education policy, these are the things that spring immediately to mind for me as a teacher. Maria, um, we spoke about various perspectives here. You've obviously got a very different perspective. What's your thoughts on the conversation so far? I think... Um, we need to look at maybe what the definition of education is. As a Muslim parent, you know, my definition of what, how a child is educated or education in general is a bit wider than what might be implemented in state or other sort of systems. Um, and I suppose a key part of that and what we were, Thelma touched upon about the Finnish system, they start school formal, formal learning a lot later. And as parents that are in a mainstream setting, there is now a, a movement called the Upstart Movement, which is basically emphasising the need for children to have a, a longer kindergarten period, essentially. So formal schooling would start later in Scotland. So it's something that parents, um, particularly in the mainstream setting, should really encourage. If this is something that allows us to get to that finished system, let's go for it. Let's, let's support this mo movement, um, essentially. Um, uh, another thing that I think that might help sort of reach that point of maybe where the Finnish system is, is to allow parents that have decided, for example, to take the home education route or indeed want to go to a private school is maybe having a system where the funding that we as taxpayers pay towards our educational system is uh, distributed a bit more evenly, perhaps. So I, if I've decided to home educate or I wish to put them in private school, can get a portion of money, essentially, for my child's education, which I can be free to use wherever I, as a parent, have decided I want to put that into, whether it goes back into a main street s setting or otherwise. Shoaib, uh, we've had, heard many different perspectives here and opinions. Uh, I see you nodding your head, agreeing, perhaps disagreeing. Uh, practical steps, please let us know what's your thoughts. I think uh, I do agree with a lot of issues that are within the education system. Going into one form of education like the Finnish system or some other system might not necessarily fit straight away within Scottish framework. Um, I think it's right that we take from different other uh, angles and see what can be improved within the Scottish education system. And one of the things that we propose to John Sweeney and 
in the Scottish Government is autonomous schools where we don't, uh, and you know, the, the money that taxpayers pay and that go to a child's education goes into uh, some, of, some, some of this structure where there is not much of bureaucracy but also there is funding to be a bit more creative and innovative. That's one approach. It, it doesn't mean that that approach works for everybody, but we haven't explored that yet, and there are opportunities where we can innovate that. Um, and I think you know those are, those are the options. Scotland, being an innovative country, should try and test and make sure that they get it right for every child. What can parents do at home, Shoei? This, this, is, this is key, parents being primary carer, sending them to a Muslim school, sending them to a state school, doing homeschooling, doing Steiner school, doing a methodology, they all fit into the primary education of the child. For when the child comes back, and as uh, Brother Hamza rightly mentioned, if they go to a, 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 a Muslim or an Islamic school and they pray namaz there and not see parents praying at home, it kind of, it's a reverse issue where they go to state schools and they don't uh, get that kind of personalized environment and parents make sure that they pray at home. So it, it's, a ch it, it's, it's, it's a mindset which is very important and I think parents must make sure that no matter what form of education their children get, the home is the first place where it kind of has negative or positive impact of what kind of education they get outside. Brilliant. Hamza, in 30 seconds, for all of our listeners at home, the families, the parents, even the, the, the young adults who are thinking about having children and they're about to have a child and put them through this educational system, whether UK or Finnish, whatever it may be, what, what is your practical advice for our listeners? Okay, no pressure. Um, I actually wanted to pick up on what um, Maria said about the definition of education. Um, in Arabic, the, one of the words for education is ta'dib. The Prophet used the word in, in a hadith, he says, Adabani Rabbi, my Lord educated me. And the word that he used was Adaba or Ta'adib. And that comes from a word that which we all know, which is Adab. And Adab, we all know, what does it mean? It's like good qualities, it's good manners, right? I'll tell you something as a primary school teacher. The children who are the most successful, in my experience, are the children that have the best character and the best qualities. I'm talking about children who are confident, but also respectful. Um, those are the children that do the best academically and socially. It is so important for parents to really put in that time to make sure that their children have good qualities. After all, the prophet did say that he was only sent to perfect good character. If we're not willing to put in that time and that effort to make our children good people, then we're not doing our jobs as educators. What's your perspective, Amaria? Well, just uh, following on what, from what Hamza had said, I think one thing that all parents can do, and it doesn't even take that, that long, really, is read to your children. Read to them, read to them every night. It's the first word that was re revealed to our Prophet So Iqra, read, and it has such a big impact. It's one of the a few things that they found that uh, yeah, adults in later life, there's a correlation between them being read as children and them succeeding in later life. You know, read to. So that, that's my take-home message for anyone, any parent. Thank you, everyone, for your very valued opinions, your perspectives, your experience. Uh, I think it's been a delight to discuss education on this show today of Sakina Society and Radio Ramadan. 
Um, I think what's been most inspiring is hearing how most of you have a lot of themes in common, but perhaps are, are sort of in different educational arenas uh, in this industry. So perhaps more conversations, but not just more conversations, but more action collaboratively can help us get to that desired destination. Thank you very much for everyone who listened in to Sakina Society. Assalamu alaikum. For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.